The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is about information law, and we have one of the top experts in the country and very, very special woman that is here from Los Angeles, somebody in California. Let me tell you a little bit about Tanya Forscheid. Tanya L. Forscheid is one of the founding partners of Info Law Group LLP. Tanya founded Info Law Group in 2009 after 12 years as a litigator and privacy and data security counselor at Proskauer Law Firm, where most recently she was also co-chair of the firm's Privacy and Data Security Practice Group. Then in 2009, Tanya was named one of the Los Angeles Daily Journal's top 100 women litigators in California. And for those of you who don't know, the Daily Journal is the legal newspaper for the entire state of California. Tanya is president-elect of the Women Lawyers Association of Los Angeles, and she is a trustee of the Los Angeles County Bar Association. She's certified as an information privacy professional, as I am, by the International Association of Privacy Professionals. And Tanya works with clients to address legal requirements and best practices for protection of customer and employee information. And she regularly advises clients regarding legal restrictions on information sharing and data protection and data retention and provides guidance regarding state laws, federal laws, and everything you need to know about security breaches. Tanya frequently speaks and writes on developments in federal, state, and privacy laws, and she launched Proskauer's popular privacy law blog in 2007. And I got to know her through all of the wonderful things that she's been writing on the internet that I see her all over the place. And she's a member of the ABA Technology uh, committee that we learn a lot from all the people that blog on there and interact on there and she's terrific and I'm so thrilled that she is joining us on the show so thank you so much Tanya for joining us I'm so pleased to be here Mari thank you so much for having me well I know you have such a great bio so I should tell everybody that if they want to learn more about you they can go to our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where they can actually see your picture and your bio, and they can also click on, and they will be led to your website, which is www.infolawgroup.com. So, Tanya, tell us, what is information law? 
Well, information law is something that has been developing um, over time, and it includes the legal practices that we sometimes think of as, as very distinct, like privacy, data security, intellectual property, which obviously has, has been around and has been a thriving legal practice for a long time, um, things like e-discovery in the litigation context. And so what we have tried to do um, at Info Law Group is focus on all of those things that involve the management of information and data from cradle to grave within an organization. And that's why we like to call it information law because we feel that um, really organizations should, should look at these issues as a whole and, and understand how they relate to each other because at the end of the day it's about protecting and managing information in order to um, help consumers, help your employees, um, keep their own information private while serving the interests of the business, working with data, uh, with vendors and, and service providers, and it, and it all comes together as a whole. And so our objective is to look at information law and not each of these discrete pieces um, as if they were separate. And it can be overwhelming with everything that's happening with the technology and all the information that's bombarding us everywhere. So yes. I, I give you a lot of kudos for that. Well, it certainly is. It's overwhelming. There are so many laws, um, and unfortunately, at every possible level, from local to, to international. And so we, we do try to synthesize that to the best of our ability and present um, our clients and our friends who visit our, our blog um, with with a um, picture of, of how it all comes together. Well, here we are going in now with the brand new year. Mm -hmm. And what are some of the hottest topics that you're expecting for 2011? Wow. Well, 2011 could see all kinds of things, um, as I think is evidenced by, by what happened in 2010. But I expect that certain things will continue to be very prominent this year. Um, social media is huge, and um, as far as legal issues, there there are an infinite number of legal issues that could come up um, from the employment context and how employers uh, deal with their employees using social media, um, either in their personal capacity or on behalf of the company. Um, these raise privacy issues and, and marketing uh, issues for organizations. So social media is one big thing. Cloud computing, which has been huge, will continue to be huge and will continue to grow um, as evidenced by the tremendous amount of media coverage out there. And so uh, organizations trying to consider what the risks are there in the contract process and then dealing with disputes with cloud providers and in the litigation context, discovery context. And then I think the other big thing uh, this year will be privacy by design, which is not in and of itself a legal issue, but it is something that impacts the entire, um, an entire organization and business process and development of products, marketing of products. The whole concept is to try to work privacy into the business um, and into products and services as they're developed and We've seen from the FTC that this is going to be a focus um, and encouraged um, within organizations. So privacy by design will also be huge. And I think that's really important. I've talked about that a couple times with different people. And when we talk about privacy by design, I, we're talking about building the privacy practices into the 
product into the architecture of the product. So yeah. when when these guys who are brilliant and they're technologists and they're making up all this great software or they're creating this hardware or whatever it is, that they think at the same time or get some help from someone like you, Tanya, to help them consider all the privacy aspects as they are actually creating the product or the service or whatever it is that they're doing. Right. And what's really wonderful is that um, I have started to see in my practice um, organizations, whether they're longstanding, existing, um, that are coming up with new products and services, or startups who are developing exciting new things, um, they really are starting to think about these things really early. And so uh, we do today get calls and emails from people who say, gee, um, for some reason, I kind of think I should be thinking about this privacy and data security stuff and, and what can I do? And uh, um, we may talk a little bit more about this uh, before we're done today, but I, I think that's something that's, that's changed perhaps in, in the um, environment, in the landscape, in the business community um, that we may not have seen a few years ago. Right. And I, I have to laugh because I've traveled so much recently and I've seen those scanners and I've I've been able to avoid them and, and get patted down. And, and thinking about the privacy by design of those scanners, you know, if somebody would have put that into their brain at the same time that they were developing those scanners, that may have been helpful, you know, aside from the radiation issues. But, you know, I mean, that kind of stuff just makes you laugh. And, you know, I know you know who uh, Senator Joe Simidian is and he's been on our show many times in he's you know people think of him as being anti-technology and he's not he just is into you know his whole thought is do privacy by design you know when you're developing your rfid technology or you're developing your biometric te- technology consider the privacy issues and what are the ramifications of them and so it's it's wonderful that there's someone like you out there really advising companies on how to do that and the, you know incorporate those issues so you don't have to try and add it on later, which would be very costly and probably very stressful. Sure. And, and of course, you can significantly reduce the chance of liability or um, some sort of enforcement or investigation litigation um, if you think about these things in advance and you're proactive about it. And so I, I absolutely think that um, the other interesting thing about it is that Privacy by design is one of those things that lets you realize that the interests of business and industry and the interests of consumers and, and individuals um, in this area are, are not necessarily inconsistent. And there are some really amazing ways that companies can both innovate and um, come up with amazing um, and, and successful uh, products and services, but at the same time uh, promote privacy and uh, compete on privacy in a positive way by building these things in. So I do think that we're headed in that direction and, and, um, and uh, you know, old notions of consumer uh, privacy protection being somehow inconsistent with uh, successful business or, or industry interests. I think those are really outdated notions. It's a value added, isn't it? Yes, it absolutely can be if it's, if it's handled correctly. Right. Now, you were talking a little bit before about cloud computing and People don't realize, you know, what, exactly what cloud computing is. So why don't you talk about what it really is? And we're all doing it. Like I know even when you're on the Internet and you're doing those social networking, you're on the cloud. 
right? right. Yes. So people are doing it without even knowing that it's <laughs> really the cloud. They don't. They don't get that. Yes, that's that's absolutely true. So cloud computing, as a term, is terminology that's become uh, much more prevalent over the last year or two. But in fact, yes, cloud computing has been around, uh, the technology has been around for quite quite some time. And it could be something as simple as just com- any kind of computing on the internet, like you say. In the um, personal or consumer computing context, that could be something like using Facebook or using social media um, that's in the cloud, that's on the internet, that's online, that's not something that's stored on your local uh, computer on your drive. Um, another good example in the consumer uh, computing context would be something like an online photo gallery where you can store all your photos and bring them together and create albums, and that's cloud computing. In the business context, what's happened is more and more businesses have um, looked to essentially out source the IT functions. Sometimes it's just applications. Sometimes it's everything, hosting, um, other services. Um, backups. Backups. And, and lawyers, too, by the way. Right. Um, this is not unique to uh, non-lawyer uh, businesses. Lawyers have also been looking to the cloud. The idea being that it can significantly uh, reduce, potentially, costs of IT um, to, ha- to outsource that information. But um, the obvious um, result of that is that you may have privacy data security risk because you're taking corporate information that, of course, in turn may include personal information of consumers or employees and handing it over to a third party, essentially. That's what you're doing. Um, whether or not that third party may be ta- making, taking steps to look at it, regardless it is now in their hands, and there could be a higher or increased risk of a breach and other things. So that's where this, these issues start to become a little interesting. But in fact, yes, cloud computing has been around for, for quite some time. But what, what's kind of funny now is that even people who, who would never have had reason to talk about cloud computing or think about it, um, lawyers who do things like, say, trust in the states are now using that terminology, which right, is right. fascinating. Yeah, it, it just seems funny to me because we've been doing it for so long, and now there's a name that we don't always connect with yes. what we're doing. Yes. But most of us are doing it anyway. And then you start to think about, well, gee, what are some of the things I should really worry about? Right. Um, there are a number of things to worry about. So that doesn't mean that cloud um, should be off limits because it, it's not, and it, and it can't. It just can't in the in the world that we live in today. Um, but particularly for an organization of any size that wants to um, put its, let's just say, email in the cloud, because that, that's an easy example um, to use an application like uh, a Gmail for the enterprise or. Uh, Microsoft has products, other uh, providers have products, Um, to to take all that email and put it out there and no longer host it on local servers. So what what could be some of the issues that could come up for for such an organization? Well, um, there could be all kinds of information in that email. There could be uh, PII, personally identifiable information of, of employees or customers, things like social security numbers or um, driver's license numbers or, um, you know, HR data is a really good example when you're talking about email, um, HR data, spreadsheets that, that could have lots of employee PII in it. Um, there could also be things like health information, medical information um, that may or may not be covered by something like HIPAA. 
Um, and of course, every organization has a different regulatory structure to deal with. If they're financial services, it might be Gramm-Leach-Bliley. But even if they're not in a particular industry sector, and this is something that I think is so crucial to understand, every single organization out there today um, is regulated by some data privacy or security law at the state level, if not at the federal level, but almost for sure at the state level. So here in California, we have legislation that says you must provide reasonable safeguards for personally identifiable information. And if you share it with a third party, and that would include a cloud computing provider that, that's going to host your email, you have to require that that company by contract also agree to provide reasonable safeguards. That's, that's the law. Um, so that's the, the kind of thing. Um, but there there are other things to worry about, too. What happens if I'm in litigation and I need to get at that information? What if suddenly the cloud provider goes down and I can't get my data? What if it's not available? What are my remedies? Um, what if they go bankrupt? What if they go bankrupt? <laughs> um, what if the government suddenly wants to grab a server because there's some bad guy on the server and I'm sharing a server with this bad guy? Um, all kinds of things. Um, and so we have all in the legal community and the, who that focuses on this area have been out there speaking, writing, talking about these privacy, security, e-discovery issues. So what are some things that we can really do to protect ourselves? I, I would think having backups uh, yes. And the local server would help, right? That's one sure. thing. Sure. So um, in terms of an individual cloud user, there are things um, that could be done in terms of backups if the concern has to do with if I might lose access to my information, absolutely. One of the most important things that can be done by an organization going into the cloud is to negotiate a strong contract with protection in the event something bad happens to the cloud provider, whether that might be... Um, a service availability issue. So those are service level agreements, um, and they provide for credits to the customers if, if the service is down. Although for some people, that's really, they just don't think that's sufficient. And so that right. might mean for some folks to say, well, gee, this is maybe not the best option for us. Um, things like breaches, if there's a breach, is, is the provider going to take account uh, responsibility? And are they going to be accountable? Are they going to indemnify? Um, a lot of cloud service providers have gone into business on a model that says, no, it's not our problem. Even if it's our fault because there's a network intrusion or who knows what, it's really not our problem if we have a breach. So a lot of this is being aware of what the risks are. And reading those contracts. Reading those contracts. Absolutely. Do not just click and say yes. And, and, and call um, Tanya and say, help us with this. I don't understand this language. Well, well, for sure, read it. Um, you know, some people need additional help and some people don't. But, but definitely reading it, not just clicking through the way that people have gotten used to doing that with, with admittedly, some cloud applications. You know, if I'm a... Um, a user on, on Facebook or of uh, Google or even just Gmail for, for myself personally, right? Um, a lot of people don't read those terms and conditions. Um, and it's one thing if you're an individual um, and you're not worried about it, but I still strongly, strongly encourage everyone, whether you're just a, a person on your own using this stuff and you don't have to pay for it, or you're a large corporation that's paying for a sophisticated service, read those contracts and understand what's your, what your rights and your risks are. And you know, the other thing that, that I think is worrisome is if you have a cloud provider that is not in this country, 
Right. Um, then even if you have this great contract, yes. think about how challenging that would be to enforce it. And is it really enforceable? Absolutely. Uh, the international issues, which we haven't even touched on yet, are also huge because the nature of the cloud is that it's everywhere. Right. Um, data moves around. Data flows constantly. It may be going from server to server. It may be going from one cloud provider to another. And it certainly uh, may be crossing uh, borders. And so, um, true that there may be enforcement issues for a provider in another country. Even more significantly, there may be restrictions on the ability um, to transfer data, uh, in fact, as a matter of law, from, say, the European Union to the United States. Even for a company that's a multinational and has an office in Paris and an office here in Los Angeles, and all they're doing is emailing employee data from Paris to London, right. uh, from Paris to L.A., I should say, that in and of itself could be in violation of the law unless right. they have, number one, done their own, uh, you know, safe harbor certification or model contracts or, well, in addition to that, that they've made sure their provider is also in compliance. And so, yes, the international issues are extraordinarily complex. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, now we have so many people that can start up their own business on the Internet, and you don't know it, but maybe there's only five people that work there. Right. You have no idea, and you're right. you're using them as a cloud provider. Right. And uh, it's, you know, how do you even do your due diligence on that? Right. And so, obviously, um, very important to do a little due diligence. And some of that is easy because the truth is there's a lot of great, great um, resources on the internet to, to learn about this stuff. So you, if you're on LinkedIn or something like that, you can, you know, join groups that talk about cloud issues. There are so many of them and get information about various providers and do a little digging around. You can um, even just Google online or, or do a Bing search and find out more information about companies. You can, um, uh, you know, just talk to people that you know in in the um, IT world and and get uh, feedback. It's it's really important to just sort of get a handle on on who people are and ask them. You know, who are your clients? You have references. Um, you know, it, there's it's one thing to be dealing with a very large provider in Amazon and Microsoft or right, right. that kind of thing, and it's another thing to be dealing with a smaller operation. But there are really easy ways to to try to get more information. Well, that's good. We're speaking with a wonderful privacy expert and attorney, Tanya L. Forscheidt, who is one of the founding partners of InfoLaw Group, LLP. And she founded InfoLaw Group in 2009 after 12 years as a privacy attorney and a security counselor and data privacy counselor at Proscar Law Firm, where she was the co-chair of the firm's privacy and data security practice group. How fun to start out on your own after being 12 years with a big firm, huh? Oh, yeah. It's been it's been a blast. We're, uh, you know, we love what we do. And so it's just great to work with a, a small group of people who are really passionate about this stuff. But at the same time, um, you know, we get to be really creative and entrepreneurial. Right. So if, if you could give some advice, because we have a lot of businesses that drive by here in Orange County, Newport Beach. Mm -hmm. If an organization has the time and resources maybe to do only one thing to, you know, to improve its privacy and data security compliance programs coming up this year in 2011, um, what should that one thing be? So there are a lot of things that, um, that could be done, and it's really hard to choose 
one thing. Uh, but uh, one thing that I have seen be very successful within organizations of all sizes is to make sure that as a um, privacy professional, so just to clarify for, for people, you know, so that might be a lawyer, but it might also be the chief privacy officer or the compliance person or whoever it is who's, who's in charge of that stuff, um, to make sure that person or those people are talking to and regularly meeting with the folks in IT, the people in information security, the business leaders, the key business leaders who um, are their clients or their stakeholders as far as um, having business interests that implicate privacy issues. Um, really bringing everyone together because it's amazing how often there, there's a lack of communication. And even if people are really savvy and, and the business side is really looking to do something um, both successful but also great for customers or great for um, others they might uh, sell to and the privacy and the legal side is just trying to make sure that, that everybody's complying with the appropriate regulations and the IT people are just trying to implement. Everybody's just trying to do their job and do it really well. But unless they all talk to each other and understand what their various goals are, it sounds really simple, but that's a huge, huge step to take and I have seen it make a huge difference uh, when people really talk to each other in a language they can understand. And so translating having people who can help translate what IT needs to the business and what the business needs to the privacy people, et cetera, that's the goal. And and it seems to me that, that that is so important. And it also seems to me important that the head of the company, the president or the CEO or whoever is really the head of it, really makes that happen and also has a devotion or a commitment to that collaboration and a commitment to privacy. Absolutely. That is, that is absolutely essential. And um, the highest level uh, folks in the organization, the C-level folks, need to be invested and need to understand what's at issue, what's at risk. They need to be briefed and they need to, to the extent they can, work this in. Again, we talked about privacy by design, making it part of the business, built into the architecture, built into the product and the services, part of the culture of an organization. And you know, so many times I've seen this, and I'm sure you have seen this as well, because we both belong to the International Association of Privacy Professionals. And when we get together with those people, often we find that the privacy officer is not reporting high up, it's reporting maybe to HR. And that is a mistake, because then you're not, you know, it's kind of like, on the side. It's not really incorporated into the major issues. Right. And and the marketing department gets so much more money and so much more attention than the privacy side. And then the marketers go off and have a great time with all of this information and they don't get it. Yeah, it, it is really important that whoever that person is or, or people who are charged with privacy as their uh, mandate, what they're responsible for, that they are um, positioned within an organization to have the ability to get things done, um, to report to the right people, uh, to make sure that you know their message is getting heard by the right people, even if they're not reporting to the CEO of the company, and regardless of what their title is, right? Because there's all kinds of titles that people can have in this role. You know, I've seen everything from 
privacy manager, director, officer, lawyer, counsel, um, as long as they can actually get heard and get things done and have that um, power and that influence within the organization taken seriously, uh, then it then then things will work. But yeah, I mean, if they're just buried somewhere for the sake of having somebody with a privacy title, it's unlikely that's going to really be effective for an organization. We are speaking today with a wonderful attorney and privacy expert, Tanya L. Forscheid, who is the founding partner, one of the founding partners of InfoLaw Group LLP in Los Angeles. And you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. You're listening to Privacy Piracy, and I'm the host with Tanya, and she is giving us all sorts of great information about privacy and data security. Tanya, tell us about how you see, because you've been in this field for at least 12 years, let, tell us how you see privacy and data security and how in the legal practice and, and how it's changed. It's just amazing to me. Right, and it has changed a lot. Um, I mentioned before that I, I, I think... Um, people are, are starting to think about privacy and data security in a more proactive fashion now, uh, in a way that perhaps they didn't five years ago. This practice is, is a strange one in some ways because it really didn't exist um, up until we started to get, or didn't exist in a really uh, robust way, until we got these data breach notification laws starting here, of course, in California, um, back in the early part of, of this decade, and uh, or this last decade. And then, of course, every other state followed, or just about every other state followed. And as a result, we started to see the um, publicity and the media and the attention around data breaches when they were reported. And suddenly organizations, uh, you know, I, I don't want to suggest that it was just those data breach statutes because it really was a lot of other things and the changes in technology and the internet and how much all of that has changed. But um, companies started to realize that, that even as a reputational matter, um, PR and, and public eye, um, they, they had to have better privacy data security practices and that it was actually important to consumers and employees how their information was handled. Sometimes it's not even about the law. I mean, often it's not even about the law. It's about how customers or employees feel when, when they somehow feel they've been wronged with respect to information. And all I have to do is point out to you some of the, the, the headlines that you probably um, have seen Past year, you know, Google, Facebook, um, things about, uh, you know, grabbing data out of Wi-Fi or changing privacy policies without, you know, notice. I mean, this stuff has become front page news. And so because of that attention and because everyone is online wanting to share information and be social and socially networked, now we have um, a higher awareness of um, companies wanting to figure out how they can protect that data and be responsible in that regard and comply with the necessary laws, hopefully stay away from any sort of regulatory investigation from the FTC or other regulators um, or, or foreign regulators or, or private litigation. So there's just much more focus on these issues than there ever has been before, and that's only going to continue, I think. Well, I think we've been in the Wild West here. When you know, when you talk about information law, information is everything. Yeah. And you know, information is so valuable. It is. It but, is. It's. It's. It is everything. Um, but but it's fascinating because I know even just a few years ago, I often tell the story. I, I met with an organization um, 
to, to talk about some of these issues. And, and this particular organization, um, which is a large, large one, and, um, you know, took the position that they didn't really have data. Um, and I, it, was, it was a serious position, but I think it was because the organization didn't understand what we were talking about with data or information. We're, we're not just talking about somebody's social security numbers. You know, you may not collect social security numbers, and we're not really necessarily talking about health information or financial information. We're talking about all kinds of information that personally identifies someone. And it's not just if you have a consumer-facing business. It's all businesses that might in some fashion get that information, whether from directly from a consumer, from a, a business partner somehow, um, through the Internet, or, or in the brick-and-mortar world. So, yes, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It affects everyone. And, um, and, and that's the world that we live in today. Even, even small companies that employ one employee – yeah. Or two employees, you know, I don't know if you know Linda uh, Linda Foley, who was one of the founders of the Identity Theft Resource yeah. Center, but she was an employee for one woman who stole her identity. Oh. So, so I mean, this, we're talking about a data breach and, yeah. and something terrible with just one employee. Yeah. So if you are a company that just has products and you just sell, you know, credit card with credit cards or cash or whatever it is, you have data. You have data who on the people that you sell to, and you also have data on your own employees. Right. So it's yes. it's crazy. It's true. And and I would add that um, it in particular small uh, merchants that process credit cards is a great example. Um, if you're a small merchant um, here in California and you accept credit cards for payment, no matter how small you are, whether you do it online or you do it in your store. Um, you're subject to the payment card industry data security uh, rules, which are contractual, and they impose some pretty stringent requirements. And, and they're not impossible to deal with, but they are, you know, required, and that's to protect your customers. And, and if you don't, then, you know, you might actually be told you can't accept credit cards anymore by, by a bank. Um, and nobody wants that to happen. You know, that, that's disastrous for businesses of all sizes. So, yes, it's, it's everyone, even the smallest. Yeah. Now, you were talking before about uh, regulations and laws. What do you think in, in this year, 2011, what do you think we're going to see in terms of federal privacy or even state privacy or data security legislation? Right. So this is always a hot topic. Everybody's you know, always speculating about what are we going to get a federal law? Are we going to have a federal privacy data security law? Um, there has been so much written about this. And for years and years and years, um, folks in Congress have been proposing bills. It's actually, there's been many bills over the years um, that have been proposed and have never uh, become law. Um, and it's not really clear why, because there's often bipartisan support for these things. But I, I think part of it is mm -hmm. that they would preempt the state laws right. and some of the state laws, for example, the security breach law in California has yeah. been such a good law and it has really been a, a leader law for every for so many other states that, you know, we think, well, what if it's working, why, you know. Don't fix something Don't, that's not broken. Right, exactly. And that's a good point. And that has been an objection, particularly on the data breach front. So many uh, advocates have taken the position that we don't want a federal law preempting state laws because some states like California uh, that you mentioned, like here in California, don't have what we like to call a um, risk of harm threshold, meaning if you have a breach, meaning 
if you think there's been unauthorized access or unauthorized acquisition is the word. Um, and it's not encrypted. And it's not encrypted. Then you got to do your notice. Um, but some states have raised the bar and said, well, you have to think there's a material risk of harm. You have to have some reason to think you do an investigation. You have to think somebody's actually going to get hurt. It's not just like there was, oops, there was a mistake, and you found the computer, and you did your forensics, and, and you realize nothing's going to happen. Um, it can't possibly get out, so you don't have to notify. The fear on the on the advocate uh, side is that a federal law would do that, would have that risk of harm threshold. And one example of that is in HIPAA, where we now do have a federal breach notification law with high tech, the only one on the federal level, and it does have a risk of harm threshold. And in fact, it's so controversial to a certain extent that it's being reviewed and considered and um, may someday not be there anymore, but, but for now it is. So yes, I think that has gotten in the way. I think if we do see in the short-term uh, federal legislation, it's much more likely to be in one of two different places. And, and just uh, recently, there, there have been some uh, interesting developments on the front with the red flags rule where the House and the Senate have amended uh, or, or proposed to amend legislation that would narrow the scope of the applicability of the red flags rule, which, which has to do with companies looking for red flags of identity theft to try to catch them um, and to, to report and go through certain procedures and have a program to try to um, catch those and, and deal with the consequences early. And, um, and prevent. And, and prevent, prevent absolutely, yes. yeah. and remediate. Right. Uh, and so financial institutions are squarely within the scope and, and have been for some time, but the FTC has been holding off on, on enforcement. Um, and so it, it could very well be that um, we, we, we see changes in the red flags application uh, as to who it covers, who's a creditor. Um, but also, and, and this is another area that's ripe, right now for potential legislation would be do not track. Um, and in December, the FTC issued a report that was uh, long anticipated dealing with online privacy and its review of online privacy issues. And this has to do with consumer choices for whether they want to be tracked online um, for, for companies to target relevant advertising to them. And there are two sides to this story, of course, there's the companies that feel that they're providing more value to a customer and that the customer then, you know, won't be bombarded with all kinds of uh, spam that they don't want um, online. Um, and then there's a consumer who often feels really creeped out by that and doesn't like it when they get an ad about something they were just posting on, you know, Facebook or they were just sending a Gmail about some subject, and all of a sudden they've got um, an ad. You know, they were talking about sports, and now somebody's trying to sell them some sports tickets. Um, so do not track, which is really just the short name that's being used because it's really not like a do not call. Um, do not track is something the FTC has looked at, talked about, and it would involve browser settings that would be persistent and that would signal to a company whether a consumer wants to be tracked or doesn't and in what fashion. So that may also happen on the legislation front. Well, yeah, and I think one issue about do not track is so many people don't realize that they're being tracked. Yes. <laughs> I mean, we saw that on Facebook. That was the big brouhaha yeah. in, in, you know, late last year. 
is that people didn't know that they were being tracked. They, you know, not so much that they were creep. And yes, they were creeped out when they'd get an ad for something. But just to know that these profiles were being sold about them to other companies that right. they didn't even know about when they're on the social networking, uh, it, it wasn't transparent. Right. Transparency is is a huge part of this. And so there's been all this debate about whether we've we've come to a point where we're past the notion of notice and consent. But at the end of the day, it is about notice. It's about transparency in some fashion. Um, you know, the FTC is now talking about sort of just-in-time notices so that when the customer is being asked for the information, at that moment they're told in some fashion by the notice why and what's going to happen to that information. Is it going to be shared? Which is very different from the traditional privacy policies that are, you know, linked at the bottom of, of the screen in fine print. Maybe they're buried somewhere. Um, although companies have tried, and it's extraordinarily difficult to, to write a truly transparent privacy policy. For anyone like me who has done that or tried to do that, it is a tremendously difficult task because it's hard to both be specific and to explain to a customer what's going on, but to also be plain and, and not talk like a lawyer and, and make really clear, you know, and transparent what's going on. So that's the ultimate challenge, and everyone's very focused on that, and that is key to do not track or whatever happens on that front. Yeah, I had read recently that Microsoft is going to be coming out in 2011 with uh, this browser, and this is before any legislation, trying to be a self-regulatory company and saying, hey, we're going to step up to the plate and we're going to build into our browser um, the, these, this notion that people can do the do not track with their browser. Yes, so, that, that, you know, I mean, that's that's healthy. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, without sort of uh, expressing any opinion as to uh, how the, the particular Microsoft browser product uh, works, because I, I haven't experienced it myself um, at this point, and, and we'll see how it develops, I think that the notion, again, we come right back to privacy by design, the concept of companies building those protections into the product or the service to try to um, make it easier for customers, right? So that customers, this is all about not putting the burden on customers, and that's the focus of the FTC as well. And, you know, when we talk about burden on customers, and, and lots of times I see, and, you know, coming from the consumer advocacy side and business advocacy side, but, but coming from that side, I really think that consumers don't know what, what they're doing. They don't know um, how to really protect themselves. And it's it's a lot of a burden for them to keep up with it. I mean, even the IT people are, are trying to figure a lot of this out to expect us right. to know how to protect ourselves. I, I was on Facebook and I had gotten an email from an old client who I had helped many years ago. And he was a victim of criminal identity theft. And he found me and he wrote this really cute email and then he had a little smiley face. And so I returned the email, and there was a smiley face, and I, and I just clicked on it. I did not know that I added um, something to my to my Facebook. I didn't know that. And then my daughter, who is more savvy than I am on this, who was working for me, she's going to be going to law school, she said, Mom, why did you add that program? And I said, what program? <laughs> it was not transparent. Right. And there, someone there has... like me, that if they would have said, do you want to have this, you know, give me a choice. Right. I would have said absolutely not. I was just doing what he had done to be cute, you know? Right. No, it's it's true. It's There are some things that um, are very difficult to, to determine for anyone, 
much less just sort of the average consumer. And yes, particularly with those applications on social networks, there's been a lot of controversy because some of them are, you know, good citizens and, and do a good job with that. And then there are a lot of bad actors out there because they, they you know, historically there's been an ability to kind of throw um, applications up on whatever and, and not really tell people what's going on or, or people don't realize that it's not part of Facebook, right? Um, and it's a problem for Facebook and for other social networks as well because they have to both manage it from their own side, which is to say, you know, how, how are we going to permit and what guidelines are we going to put around app developers um, to try to restrict these practices? But, but it's also a problem vis-a-vis -vis the consumers um, to make sure they know, they get it, they, they hear what's going on and they, they're given a choice when it happens right. um, and they're not surprised later. Yeah, that stuff happens all the time. <laughs> I mean, I'm always amazed on Facebook what people do without, I think, sometimes realizing. And so education, totally aside from the legal side of this, education is hugely important. Yes. And then when you have so many young people using this and they're in a hurry and they're, ha they're having fun and they're meeting people and they have not a clue about the ramifications of what's going on. Right. It's, it's true. And, and uh, this is um, related to uh, there's some fascinating, fascinating write, writing out there, which I'm, I, I know you're probably very familiar with about this notion of the right to forget or yes. um, to delete information. To, yeah. Victor Mayer Schoenberger, um, others who have written about this stuff. We all have these, uh, they talk about youthful indiscretions, and uh, that's been a part of coming of age in this country. Um, and of course, those of us who grew up in a time and a place where we, you know, no one could flash, uh, use a smartphone, take a picture of us at our worst moments in college and, and put it up on the internet for all to see, uh, we've probably all benefited from that in some fashion because, um, you know, we, we have grown to be adults and responsible adults and we don't have to spend our lives trying to clean up uh, the mess that, that we made in, in a couple of minutes in college. Folks growing up today, um, young people don't have that um, luxury, even if they themselves don't engage in social networking, other people do and, and they can, their reputations can be harmed very, very easily. This is a huge problem. And so education and um, talking to young people about, and even the president has done this, talking to young people about responsible use of uh, social networks. Um, it, it's a complicated issue. It's going to continue to be a complicated issue. Right. And, and when I talk about this with people, I say, you know what, remember this, anything that you don't want your family to see. <laughs> Yes. yes. <laughs> or, you know, that you wouldn't want your mother to see, your father to see, right. your, you know, your employer to see, don't put it up there. And once it's up there, remember that it'll never really be deleted. It'll never really go away. Right. That's, that's true. And, um, you know, that principle expands beyond the things that people say on, on social networks. Uh, that's something that I've talked to clients about in the context of um, large organizations and use of email. Um, people oh. always assume, even within a company, that um, somehow, you know, all of those communications could never get out to anyone except the person that they, they're writing to. Um, well, in fact, through things like discovery and litigation and, and uh, leaks and... Um, other, you know, breaches and unfortunate Hacking. incidents, you know, yeah. things can happen all the time. And so, you know, if you don't want it to be displayed out um, in, the, in the town square, 
whatever size town you may be living in, you think about what you write. It's not just about how you get rid of information in the long run. It's also what you put into electronic media in the first place. And people yes. really need to get that. Yes. It, it, it is terrifying. <laughs> and then you think about WikiLeaks, yes, you know? Well. <laughs> I mean, these these heads of states that have said things that were terribly embarrassing that got out there. I mean, we are in such a changing world, aren't we? We I really mean, are. And, and you know, we are. We all laugh about the WikiLeaks thing, but it's it's a tremendously serious issue, and it's and it, it's a good example of how much things have changed and, and how we have to um, change our our culture and our understanding of of how information flows and information works in in today's day and age. And and I think part of that is um, there's there's an inconsistency. There's kind of a disconnect in the American culture, everyone has an expectation for some reason that their communications are protected or certain communications are protected. But, um, and so they, they have that sort of um, entitlement, but at the same time, um, they really want to share. Right. <laughs> they really right. want to share. Uh, and they want to be social and they want to share in lots of contexts, professional and personal. And so that disconnect, we, we need to work on that disconnect and, and, bringing people uh, to a higher level of awareness. You know, another thing that has happened to me, and I don't know if it's ever happened to you, but when you write an email quickly, and I, I never put anything confidential, anything, and I, I tell my clients, I've taught them all how to use WinZip so that they can encrypt a 250-bit encryption when they write me something confidential. They just put it in a Word document, and they encrypt it, and then they send it as an attachment, and then I, I know that we're protecting it as best we can with an email. But right. I mean, sometimes people will say something really flippantly. Yeah. And it will be taken wrong and it can really destroy your reputation especially if somebody forwards it and they didn't understand. So yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm learning more and more to read my emails two or three times before I send them and really sweeten them up because I have a feeling that someone's going to take it wrong. Yeah. So Yeah, uh, it's true. It, it we're all guilty of that and email has no Tone sometimes. Um, I, I I just did this the other day. I, I wrote something um, in all caps. I wrote a sentence in all caps, and I was doing it to try to emphasize. And you um, were yelling, but but somebody <laughs> thought I was yelling. <laughs> and um and and it was actually just one of my colleagues, and 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 because it was um it was one something where we were both conscious of what had happened. Uh, you know, he, he responded with sort of a smiley face, you know, yeah. why yeah. are you yelling? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's true. We email does not communicate, does not translate some of this stuff very well. Some of us use all caps and we mean one thing yes. and other people read it totally different. Same thing with the smiley faces. So we all have to be very aware of it. Even, even the color. Sometimes I change the color of, of a part of a sentence so that people know that it's important. And I thought, I better not use red. Maybe I should use green. You know, I mean, isn't that true? I mean, I, I have done that too. I learned my lesson too. One time I put something in all in caps, the same thing. Why are you yelling? Why are you thinking, yelling? I'm not yelling. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think it's very dangerous. And that's, I won't do mediation by that either. I'm just thinking of doing it all by, you know, Skype and video instead of people mm. want me to, you know, mediate, it's even better to do it maybe that way. Or I, I definitely do it by phone. I don't allow people, I even have that in my agreement because I do a lot of mediation. I, I have actually had to write it into my agreement. We will not mediate 
an email. Right. All we'll do is, you know, maybe mediate when we're going to meet. <laughs> Inter- right. Scheduling. Or yeah. scheduling or something like providing documents, right. you know, that are encrypted or something like that. But I have literally had to write it into my agreement because people start to want to continue the mediation and I think it's very, very dangerous because it, 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 it actually escalates the conflict. It is dangerous. It can escalate the conflict. And today, I mean, the point you made about encryption is really important. So I, I wanted to mention that before. I think encryption of electronic communications, not just as a best practice, but also because now it's actually required by some laws, like the Massachusetts Data Security Regulations, um, for certain kinds of information. And so we are seeing a, a, a real trend towards um more and more organizations of, of every size using encryption for uh, email transmissions, other electronic communications, for storage too on on laptops and mobile devices and things like that. Which, which if even if it's not required by law and it often is, is just a really good idea. And and if you have a breach, it's a good idea too, as you said before. Sometimes um, notice may not be required if information is encrypted. It depends on the law, but um, encryption is really important. And and so. I, I wanted to echo that. Yeah, and it may be even if you don't have a specific law in your state that says that if you um, encrypt, then, you know, you don't have to right. notify. Right. But just, you know, now it's becoming the standard. So you talk about the standard in the industry. If you don't encrypt, you know, then then that could, you know, even without a law, it, right. if it's the standard in the industry, it's then true. you are violating that. It's true. And um it, even even if it hasn't risen to the level of what we might call a standard, um, it, it is what what courts will look at and what a lot of statutes refer to is reasonable security. It's all about reasonable security, reasonable safeguards. Using encryption is always a big step in the direction, if not reasonable security in and of itself. It, it's a huge step in that direction, and so um, I, I see a lot more implementation on that front. And it also doesn't have to be expensive. That's another important. Right. And I think it's going to get cheaper and cheaper because there is more companies out there that are offering that. Right. Some are offering it for free, by the way. I'm not going to mention anybody in particular, but people should know that there are free products as well. Yeah. I wish you would mention. I know WinZip used to be free, and, and but now they charge a minimal fee for consumers. And of course, for businesses, they charge more. Right. But are there other ones out there? Because I use the WinZip for you my know, clients. There are a couple, and I, I'm not, um, obviously, I have to say, because I'm a lawyer here, right. I'm not uh, endorsing any right. particular product. Right. You're not um, but I will tell you that there are some free options out there. Um, one of them, um, there's a, there's a product called TrueCrypt, which I believe is, is is offered for free online. There's also an email program that works with Outlook that's called Secret123 um, that's relatively new, and that is also a free uh, offering for people who have Outlook. So there, those are not all the options out there um, right, right. That, that I know of that are free, and of course there are other options that are also very inexpensive, even if not completely free. Um, but there are lots of options. You know, whenever you hear somebody say, well, you know, we can't do encryption because it's just so expensive, it's just... Um, not it's not a valid excuse anymore. Not the expense. Um, you know, burden is another issue, but it, it can. There, there are ways to address the burden, even for a large organization. And and the burden of protecting oneself is much better than the burden of engaging in litigation. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you'd much rather <laughs> be dealing with um, <laughs> dealing with protecting the information up front than responding to uh, a lawsuit or an, an investigation. 
You know, I, I had a question for you, Tanya, because I don't I don't really litigate anymore. I do expert witness testimony, but I don't really litigate. But I know that this is the whole question of e-discovery now. That is just overwhelming. Everything I read about it, thank God I don't have to be too involved in that. But that just kind of explain that because companies don't understand what they're going to have to produce. Right. Um, e-discovery, and the truth is, uh, I was at a conference recently recently where I spoke about this uh, at the, the Georgetown Advanced E-Discovery Institute, where I spoke about new technologies in e-discovery, like cloud computing issues and social media. And um, when we talk about e-discovery, it might be easier these days to just say discovery. And a lot of the people there who are uh, very big in this area think that in five years we'll just call it discovery because discovery is just a part of litigation for people who don't know where um, you get evidence. You look for evidence on both sides. So if we talk about it's really civil litigation we're talking about. I'm not going to get into criminal because that's really a whole different structure. But civil litigation, you know, you propound requests. You send out requests to the other side and you get back answers and you do it in writing and you do it in depositions and so on. You know, people and they're recorded and you do it in all these fashions. Because of all of the technology now and all of the various ways in which we communicate electronically, so everything from our email to our text messages to our IMs to our social networking to our um, intranet and our, uh, you know, SharePoint and everything in the world that we use to communicate, all of that stuff, if you wind up in a litigation where somebody makes a claim, whether it's you or the person on the other side, makes a claim that relates to whatever it is you wrote yes. or whatever it is that was in that information, that could be discovered. And if it's relevant, if it's relevant, which is very broadly defined in our in our legal structure here, um, even if it's private, even if it's confidential, it it's still probably going to be discoverable. You might have something like a protective order that might keep it just within the litigation, but sometimes you won't. Sometimes it'll even be public. And um, people don't think about that, so it's another good reason not to put a lot of information into emails or other communications that you wouldn't want to come out in a litigation. Now, there are some exceptions, like your attorney-client privilege communications. Those are things that have higher levels of protection that right. usually um, you know, prevail um, in a dispute about that. But even there, and talk about a hot topic in social media, um, when employees communicate with their own lawyers using company computers, right? I mean, that is an issue that's still being uh, resolved and worked out, and there was case law in New Jersey last year dealing with that. So, you know, we're, that is really an evolving subject, but, but companies need to get a handle on what kind of information they have. The first and most important thing to do is just sit down and think about where all the places are that you have information, because you're, if you ever wind up in court, you're going to have to tell the judge, you're going to have to tell the other side, and you're going to have to look for everything you have. And that can be a huge problem if you don't know where your information is. And then they're going to have to call you, Tanya. And, and we're, and we're <laughs> well, going to... I hope that they don't find themselves in a situation oh, where know. they have to call I me. know, I know. <laughs> but we are out of time. I can't believe it. We're going to have to have you back, especially to talk about all the new stuff that's going to be happening later on this year. So just please give your website, and we're going to have to go. Sure. It's uh, www.infolawgroup, I-N-F-O-L-A-W-G-R-O-U-P.com.
Well, Attorney Tanya Forshite, you are wonderful, and we sure appreciate all the great work you're doing, and we will look for you again, and we'll tell people to go to your website. Well, it was a pleasure being here. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, thank you so much. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. right here on KUCI, and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thank you. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.